Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. For the United States, we are gathering here today less than 18 months before December 1st, 2020, World AIDS Day. The first set of global fast track goals come due that World AIDS Day and will mark an important milestone on whether the world can achieve an end to HIV as a public health threat by 2030. The fast track goals were intended to catalyze accelerated effort in reducing new infections, initiating more people on treatment, and combating stigma and discrimination within a short five-year window to put us on track for 2030. Globally, tremendous progress has been made, but despite the call to action, we're off track in reducing new infections and have been hampered by reduced political will and financing in recent years. And several countries' progress has recently stalled, including the United States. Approximately 1.1 million people ages 13 and older are living with HIV here in this country. A decade ago, the number of U.S. infections was declining substantially each year, but since 2013, progress in preventing HIV has stalled, and about 39,000 people have become newly infected each year. That adds up to half a million people in the last decade, with an estimated 20% unaware of their status. And the viral suppression rate in the United States is among the lowest in the world, or is the lowest among comparable high-income countries at 52%. The President's February 5th State of the Union announcement of a new plan to achieve epidemic control in the United States in the next 10 years was an important recognition that progress has stalled and that new energy and focus is needed to bring down new infections and ensure those living with HIV are properly diagnosed and treated. Building off of the Obama-era national strategies from 2010 and updated in 2015, the new plan comes with a request for the first significant new funding in nearly 30 years. A budget request for year one in the amount of $291 million has gone forward to Congress, and the operational kickoff for programs is set for the beginning of next calendar year. The announcement has been met with great interest and enthusiasm but also with a little bit of skepticism and concern about contradictory and competing priorities and policies that undermine service access and the need for reduced stigma, as well as the proposed significant cuts to PEPFAR and to the Global Fund. There are many lessons learned from the PEPFAR global experience, including how crucial it is that countries have strong political will to combat HIV, sufficient funding, and policies that are supportive and enable non-discriminatory access to services. Our CSIS Global Health Policy Center team is currently working on a documentary on the risk of HIV resurgence, of which you'll see a short clip momentarily. Our team was recently in Tennessee and Arkansas where they heard from people living with HIV or at high risk for infection about how important and potentially life-changing the strategy is. They feel hope that their needs are being recognized and no longer ignored. And it will be crucial to include them in the planning and implementation as the plan turns into action. We hope to hear a little bit more today about what the listening tour that will go into the implementation uh, will comprise. We've seen globally how important it is to understand and respond appropriately to the social and structural drivers that increase risk for infection and to ensure that, that responses are localized and appropriate to the context and conditions in each area. A highly effective HIV response is not about HIV alone. The response has to be multi-sectoral, bringing in education, housing, corporate, social sectors, as well as the broader health system. 
And again, as we've seen globally, linkage to services for other health conditions such as sexually transmitted diseases and infections, contraception and syndemics such as hepatitis C and opioids can yield dividends for our HIV goals. And we also cannot separate provision of HIV services from tackling institutionalized or societal discrimination against affected communities, especially the LGBT community. And we need to be smart and well-informed about HIV again. Treated well, HIV can be a chronic condition for those living with it, and science has proven U equals U. Those on treatment with suppressed viral loads cannot pass on the virus. But that doesn't mean we should be complacent about prevention. HIV is still a crisis in many communities in this country, and literacy about the virus needs to be reprioritized, as well as providing access to pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP to those who need it. As we look to 2020 and beyond, there's tremendous opportunity to capitalize on what we know works. Much of that a credit to decades of US leadership in HIV research and clinical care domestically, as well as through PEPFAR and the Global Fund internationally. We have the opportunity to take that knowledge and the tools at our disposal to tackle local epidemics with specialized care, to scale up usage of tools that prevent and treat HIV, and to combat stigma and discrimination. Our work here at the Global Health Policy Center has long focused on the global AIDS pandemic, and we continue to highlight opportunities and critical challenges. We launched today, or yesterday, a new HIV-focused podcast series called AIDS 2020, which follows the stories of key players connected to the 23rd International AIDS Society Conference scheduled for next July in San Francisco and Oakland, California, and the issues facing the global response ahead of World AIDS Day 2020. We are also working on a full-length documentary that will highlight our collective journey from the early days of HIV to the present, and what is at risk if we don't meet our goals into the future. We're gonna show you a short clip of the footage as, uh, that we've gathered thus far to give you a little bit of a preview before we go on with the rest of our schedule. I was in a monogamous relationship um, and I was 20 years old and I contracted HIV. region, we are still afraid to talk about HIV, we're still afraid to talk about just STDs in general, but it's here and we need to deal with it. Once a week, uh, I get a newly diagnosed young male. Where was the ad campaign? Where was um, the knowledge that we could have provided? Sex is happening. We know this. But who's, who's taking the time to educate? Bible Belt, um, 
and we know that religion plays a huge part in pretty much every aspect of everyday life in the South. It has been a challenge. I, I pastor individuals even today that some of them still think that they're going to hell. It's heavy in every area and aspect of our lives. It's a transgender woman of color. And when you've dealt with trauma, we tend to do things that we wouldn't if we had. Of the disease lies in the southern U.S., and if we want to end the epidemic in this country, we'll have to do it through the South. I am cautiously optimistic. In order for it to be effective, the community has to have a seat at the table. Our data and our numbers, they're telling real-time stories. If you really put an ear to the people and to these communities, you can truly solve what these issues are. And I just challenge this administration to do the same thing. Many thanks to Justin Kenny of Small Footprint Films for his collaboration with us on the documentary and his preparation of the, that clip today. We are at a critical inflection point globally and in our domestic response, and we welcome the opportunity to hear today from two esteemed leaders in HIV who are the main, two main architects of this new U.S. plan. Our first speaker is Dr. Robert Redfield, who has spent three decades as a leading HIV researcher and clinician, and currently serves as the director for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Our second speaker, speaker is Dr. Anthony Fauci, the United States top infectious disease researcher whose nearly four-decade leadership at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is an inspiration to, I know, many of us in the room. We are also uh, very appreciative to them to come together today to take the time out of their busy schedules to jointly discuss the plan. Each will give short presentations and then we will have a moderated conversation led by J. Stephen Morrison, CSIS Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center. Dr. Redfield. Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and to uh, give an overview of uh, the initiative. See if I can figure out what button to push. You want to show me which button to push? I'm technically challenged. Which one? Perfect. No? No? You can just tell me which one to push. Which one did you push? This one right here? Got it. Well, I think we all know that uh, the uh, HIV has uh, cost uh, this country and the world too much. Uh, approximately 700,000 people have lost their lives. Annual cost of care is up over $20 billion. And if we continue on the course that we're at right now, we can anticipate over the next decade an additional 400,000 people acquiring HIV. You can see from this slide, as was mentioned already in the introduction, after significant progress like in the peak in the mid-90s, uh, about 130,000 new infections per year, 
we made a lot of progress. Uh, but over the since two, uh, 2009, uh, 2013, you can see in that time frame we really have stagnated to approximately 40,000 new infections per year. If you look at the HIV epidemic in the United States, it's it's very disproportionately affecting, as you heard already, uh, the rural South. About 52% of HIV is in the rural South. Uh, it's also disproportionately affecting the African-American community, about 44%, and disproportionately affecting uh, men who have sex with men. As you can see, about 70% of the new infections. Um, and when you look at the overall um, new infections in this nation, you may come to the impression that we're doing pretty well. Uh, sort of, it's stagnant, but some groups are coming down. Uh, as you can see, even among uh, African-American uh, men who have sex with men, bisexual men, it, it, it's been pretty stable. But when you start dissecting it in terms of demographics, you can see that if you look at the group between the age of 25 and 34, either African-American uh, men or sex with men or bisexual or a Latino, we've had a substantial increase from 2010 to 2016 of almost uh, 64 to 68%. So substantial increase. The current efforts are not reaching that group effectively at all. Um, one of the things that Dr. Fauci and I were able to do, John Merman's here, uh, this is data that was generated by CDC through the states and their um, local health departments, was asked the question, of that 40,000 new infections, where did they actually occur? And I think it was really, a, I know Tony and I think both were kind of shocked when we saw this map, that actually over 50% of the infections were actually occurring in 48 counties the District of Columbia and San Juan, Puerto Rico, out of the more than 3,000 jurisdictions. So it was a very geographically concentrated epidemic. And so it became, I think, from an aspirational goal that this nation could lead an effort to uh, bring an end to HIV epidemic, uh, to something that all of a sudden became quite doable. Concentrated effort geographically, and a concentrated uh, epidemic demographically in the 25 to 34 year old uh, Latino and African American men who have sex with men. The other thing we recognize very clearly uh, that the, these jurisdictions were all urban jurisdictions. And as you saw from the, the preview film, the HIV epidemic in the rural South, which again was 52% of the overall epidemic, is a complex epidemic in and of itself, and it's different than the rural South. And so we looked to see which of the area states that would be qualified as rural had the most uh, HIV infection, and you can see that it was uh, these seven states in the rural South, so they were also targeted along with these 50 jurisdictions, the 48 counties, D.C. and San Juan, to be the initial target uh, in, a, in a similar philosophy that was done initially with PEPFAR, where the originally 15 countries were targeted, where it represented a substantial portion of the global epidemic. This, these 50 jurisdictions uh, were selected based on the fact that they led the nation in terms of the number of cases, not necessarily the number per 100,000, but the absolute number of new infection 
and the jurisdictions, and set the goal to reduce this by 75% in five years and 90% in 10 years uh, as a goal to, again, bring an end to the HIV epidemic in this nation. Uh, the president's discretionary budget was already mentioned, a variety of different agencies. I think the other thing, and Tony will probably talk about it, uh, that's unique is not only that this is geographically targeted, it's demographically, we know, very focused, but this is an initiative, uh, obviously by President Trump, led by Secretary Azar, where all the agencies within HHS are actually working together as a single organism with basically different functions, you know, between CDC, HRSA, Indian Health Service, NIH, the Office of the Assistant Sec Secretary of Health, as well as uh, SAMHSA, and I think you can see that. The fundamental pillars of the response are, are not complicated. It's first and foremost, we've got to diagnose HIV infection. I think it's, uh, I think many of you know that today over 15% of people in this country have not been diagnosed. Of the people diagnosed last year, 50% uh, of those individuals have been infected for more than three years. Uh, if you look at uh, individuals diagnosed last year, seven out of 10 had actually seen a healthcare facility in the year prior but not been diagnosed. So there's still a complacency in this nation about diagnosis, and it's really important to relook at ways to be more innovative about how we bring diagnosis to where people are, as opposed to asking people to come where we are to get diagnosed. And this can be important in this initiative uh, for, for that approach. Uh, as mentioned, treatment, get people diagnosed, get them into treatment, and figure out how to keep them in treatment, and so they become virally suppressed. Tony will talk more about the scientific data for behind the initiative. Uh, it sounds simple, but it's complicated. And it's obviously gonna be complicated more to reach the individuals that currently haven't been effectively, effectively engaged in continuing care. As you know, in the United States today, overall about 60% of patients living with HIV are, are basically uh, uh, in care and virally suppressed. The Ryan White program is up over 85% across this nation. Um, but we have a long way to go to really ensure that uh, all individuals with HIV infection are into treatment and effectively engaged in treatment and effectively um, um, suppressed. Probably the most critical piece of uh, the initiative and what I think makes the initiative uh, so doable in uh, 2019 as opposed to a decade ago is that we now have a biological mechanism to add to our prevention portfolio, and that's pre-exposure prophylaxis. And so fundamental to this is that evidence-based uh, prevention strategies get fully em em embraced in this initiative. And w we will continue to work to ensure that all individuals that are at risk for HIV infection can get access to pre-exposure prophylaxis. And we want to see uh, expanded use of safe syringe programs across this country the, those evidence-based prevention strategies need to be available uh, to help, uh, again, prevent new acquisition of HIV. Uh, we develop teams to be able to respond to cluster uh, outbreaks that we see across, or hotspot outbreaks that we see, uh, so that they won't uh, negate the advancements as we move towards the goals of uh, reducing HIV infection by 75% in the first five years. And obviously the most important thing is to help expand and create a, a, a workforce that can help bring this to reality. And the most important component of this workforce 
is to build a community workforce. I think Jesse's here, he knows that the biggest issue here is how to really fully engage the community. I say this is an initiative that needs to be developed for the community, in the community, and by the community. Because the individuals we're trying to engage into care and treatment right now, for some reason have stayed out of the care and treatment to this date and they need to be uh, proactively engaged. And to do that, we're gonna have to develop, I think, uh, uh, individuals, uh, teams of individuals and workforce, a community workforce that knows how to uh, effectively accomplish that. So we can, uh, will work, CDC will work to help develop that workforce. Ultimately, it's gonna be developed by the individual jurisdictions. This is not gonna be a, a HHS down-driven initiative. This is an initiative for each of the jurisdictions to develop their plan, understand what they think the gaps are, understand what they think needs to be done to begin to make progress in, uh, in reducing the number of new HIV infections in their jurisdictions, in their communities. Uh, we're prepared to help uh, expand the the public health uh, uh, ability to do that and to help provide resources to develop these community-based workforces. But it really is gonna be the local jurisdictions that are gonna have to decide what it is in their jurisdiction, uh, where are the, the key gaps that need to be filled to, to be successful. And there's gonna be trial and error, I'm sure, in the first couple of years in terms of trying to understand uh, what uh, different uh, interventions are gonna have the, the best impact. Finally, there's a number of things that have started already. As you know, this is a 2020 strategy and we anticipate Congress will uh, uh, fund the, the initiative and the request of the president. Uh, but a number of things have started already. Uh, the Office of the Assistant Secretary did have some resources that they were able to begin to, uh, to uh, let's seed uh, a response. Uh, soon, hopefully, uh, three local uh, three or four local communities will, will be able to begin to develop their initiative prior to the 2020 uh, budget cycle and uh, begin to uh, uh, operationalize uh, this initiative and, and hopefully serve as a, a, an advanced uh, uh, system of learning very uh, definitively what some of the challenges are as we begin to try to operationalize this. And then you'll see uh, in the coming weeks uh, uh, a funding release for the total of 57 jurisdictions that have been selected, the 50 local jurisdictions and the seven states. And so really those are my comments. I just want to underscore that the success of this uh, initiative uh, will really rest in how effective the initiative is to fully embrace the community. Uh, as I said, this is a local defined initiative. Uh, that is going to be uh, uh, ultimately defined by the community, for the community, in the community. Uh, it's not a single approach that's going to be used for all 57 jurisdictions. Uh, and I anticipate that uh, some jurisdictions will be quite innovative. I think central to this, uh, as a clinician that's uh, been in this space for a long time, it's time for us to develop systems of clinical care and medicine uh, where we actually allow individuals that are at risk for HIV infection or have HIV, uh, that those individuals uh, are given the opportunity to get the care where they are rather than the systems that we've created to date, which we're more than willing to provide care and treatment to people if they come where we are. I do think this, if you will, this last hurdle to get these uh, last group of individuals diagnosed and care are gonna require significant innovation, which we're looking to the community to work with the lo local jurisdictions to do that. So thank you very much.
So which is the right one, Bob? <laughs> there you go. All right. I got it right the first time, of course. Right? <laughs> Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, Bob gave you the, the outline of, of what the plan is and why we think it can be uh, accomplished, particularly, as he mentioned so appropriately at the end, at the community level. What I'm going to do uh, over the next several minutes is talk to you about what the fundamental scientific basis of why we feel this plan is really quite doable. And that is that we actually have the tools. You know, we've actually had the tools for a considerable period of time, but over the last few years, we often, Bob and I often get asked this, so what is really different? There are a lot of things different of socially from the community, but there are some things that are different that have been absolutely proven beyond the shadow of a doubt with regard to the scientific standpoint, and that's what I want to spend the next few minutes talking to you about. Um, about four years ago, I wrote this article in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we were talking then about ending the HIV AIDS pandemic. Uh, and a number of us in the community of researchers and public health officials have been writing and speaking about the feasibility of taking the tools that we already have and that we've been fine tuning over the years to actually end the epidemic. And you notice the title of this paper that I wrote says, follow the science, because the science has really brought us to where we are right now. A very difficult road for those of you who were there in the very early years, but little by little and step by step, we got to the point where we can definitively say what we're saying today. So if you look at the breathtaking advances in science that have occurred over the last 38 and a half years, 38 and three quarter years since we've been doing this, I could spend my entire few minutes uh, on each and every one of these boxes times the 10 that are on this slide. But the one that really is the most transforming of all is what really has happened in the realm of treatment, something that was unimaginable for those of us who were seeing HIV-infected individuals in the early 80s. But it has come true in a way that we even could not have imagined. So I always show this picture uh, when I talk about this subject because more than for the audience, it just reminds me of what it was like. This picture was taken in my ward on the NIH in the winter of 1981-82 when AIDS didn't even have a name and certainly didn't have an etiological agent. And the reason I show it uh, to keep reminding us of where we were where we got to and where we can be with regard to treatment because as shown here, the patients that we took care of had a median survival of about a year, which means that 50% of them would be dead in a year and probably close to 95 to 100% of them would be dead in a few years. And that wasn't just for us, that was throughout the United States and the world. Then when treatment came, whoops, we started to do fundamental basic science, and probably the most important of which was something that seems rather simple now, but it was really the core of what we did, was to precisely delineate the replication cycle of HIV, which led to a relatively new field, which HIV has actually blossomed forth 
to spill over into other disciplines, and that is the field of targeted antiretroviral, targeted antiviral therapy, which really met its heyday in targeted antiretroviral therapy. So, a little bit of historical perspective, uh, because it really tells you how things have evolved. The first drug, as you know, was AZT in 1987. It was approved by the FDA in a relatively small trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which dropped the level of virus somewhat, certainly not to below detectable. In fact, we didn't even know what below detectable then was because we didn't have the assays to determine what was below detectable. We were using P24 assays, and it didn't last very long as shown there. Then came the double combinations, particularly when lamivudine, 3TC, entered the picture. We came down a lot more, but again, it wasn't sustainable. And it was only in 1996 with the triple combination particularly with the entry of the protease inhibitors, that we were able to achieve something that was unique for us in the field. Now remember, this is 1996, and we were started off in 1991, so it was 15 years later, where not only we went down to below detectable, but it's sustained there essentially indefinitely. So now with the more than 30 FDA-approved antiretrovirals, the ones on the right-hand side of the slide are those that are in single tablet regimens, namely much easier to use and much more amenable to an individual taking a single pill indefinitely. Such that now, going back to that picture that I showed you, where the median survival was about a year, today, particularly with early diagnoses, and that really gets to a part of the plan, Diagnosing people, and I want to mention something that Bob and I have been speaking about for some time now. Be careful because what you are going to see in the next few years, if the plan is successful, is that the number of HIV diagnoses is going to go up, not down. The incidence is going to go down, but the diagnoses are going to go up because we're diagnosing more people. But with early diagnosis today, if you put someone on antiretroviral therapy, you could actually predict from these actuarial curves that that person, if they're in their mid-20s, would live an additional 50-plus years, which would put them almost in the category of a normal lifespan. Not quite, but almost there. Moving on quickly to prevention. We're going to put these two together, and those are the fundamental solid rocks of what we're talking about. Because these are all the prevention modalities that we've shown over the years work. One of them, oops, what a, why does it do that? We're going the wrong direction, folks. <laughs> going backwards, like, all right, there you go. Okay, so there have been a lot of iconic studies that have been performed over the last several years. I think none is second to the now really historic 052 HPTN study, which was the beginning of treatment as prevention. The serodiscordant study would show that if you start somebody early in the course of infection, you decrease by greater than 95% the likelihood that they would transmit to their uninfected sexual partner. We did not know at the time that we published this study 
the relationship between an undetectable viral load and the lack of transmissibility. We just knew that you had a less, more than a 95% chance of not transmitting. Five years later, when we looked at the data accumulated over five years, it became clear that if you looked at viral load, there was something that seemed unbelievable. There were no linked transmission in people who had a undetectable viral load. Most people didn't believe it, and they said, well, there are mostly heterosexuals in that study. If you went into a gay man population, men who have sex with men, it wouldn't hold up. So what we did is we did a series of studies using tens and tens of thousands of men who have sex with men, the partner study, opposites attract, partners too, and we found that with more than 150,000 condomless sexual acts, if the viral load was below detectable, there was zero linked transmissions. That is truly amazing if you think about that for a while. So any doubt about the concept that undetectable equals untransmissible went out the window because as you remember, there was a lot of reluctance on saying that for a variety of reasons. That's why we were able to say, as I wrote in this article in JAMA, that undetectable really does mean untransmittable. Now, what about people who are not infected? And Bob brought this up. Pre-exposure prophylaxis. We all know one pill per day in an individual at high risk, you decrease by more than 95% the likelihood of acquisition of HIV infection. So if you take those two things, Treatment is prevention, and pre-exposure prophylaxis, that's it. That's the fundamental scientific basis of why this plan is going to work. With an emphasis, I might say, on pre-exposure prophylaxis, because there was some concern about that. The reason that's critical is that we've done a couple of studies in Africa, in Botswana, in Kenya, and others, that if you just do intensified treatment as prevention, you save a lot of lives, but you don't decrease the incidence. You have to combine treatment as prevention with pre-exposure prophylaxis, and that's the reason why it's such an important part of our plan. So the evolving concepts, putting these things together, allowed us, and Bob introduced that in his discussion, for when we said, you know, we actually have the possibility now, if we implement that, to end the epidemic. And then, as Bob said, when we looked at the map and we looked at the ge demographic and geographical concentrations, it became clear that we could actually do that. So what did we say? We said, theoretically then, if we accessed and put on antiretroviral therapy, everyone, and I'll take that back a bit, not necessarily everyone, but most of the people who are HIV infected and provide PrEP for those at high risk, quite frankly, we could end the epidemic tomorrow if we did that. That's theoretical. But we don't live in a theoretical world, we live in a real world, and the purpose and the theme and the end game of the plan is to bridge the gap between what is theoretically possible, and it clearly is, to what we can actually accomplish, the realistic compass. And with that is what Bob introduced. He showed you this slide. These are what each of the individual agencies will be doing. The NIH has a particular role that we, we embrace and we look forward to it, is doing the implementation science 
predominantly but not exclusively through our Centers for AIDS research. And they're very strategically located. So if you look at the location of the Centers for AIDS Research as well as our AIDS Research Centers and superimpose upon that the map that Bob showed you, it fits pretty well with the areas of concentration both geographically and demographically. So finally, what is new and different about this initiative and why are we optimistic that we are going to succeed? And the answer is this is truly the first time that an accelerated effort to implement HIV treatment and prevention in this country has been simultaneously undertaken by multiple HHS agencies focusing on specific and concentrated target. So I will end with this slide uh, of an article I wrote in the Washington Post, an, an editorial, an op-ed, at the invitation of actually Fred Hyatt, who's the editor of the editorial page. And the reason I wrote it is that I had a conversation with, with uh, Fred more than three years ago in which I was telling him sort of the same thing that we're talking about now today. And he said, you know, why don't you just write an op-ed in the Washington Post and really call attention to the general public. And I did, and noticed I used the terminology, no more excuses, because we have the tools to end the HIV epidemic. And there really are no more excuses, because as you've heard from me and you've heard from Bob, we have the capability of doing it, we have the scientific tools, we just need to implement it. You know, when you talk about history, I gave you a little bit of history on some of the slides. I think history is gonna judge us very, very harshly if 10 years from now, we will have blown this opportunity and not done what we clearly have the tools to do. So that's the reason why we are all looking forward for the next few years, five years and 10 years, where we will get it down to 90% less than it is now. Thank you. those presentations. Um, I also want to acknowledge we have with us today uh, Gunila Carlson, Acting Director of UNAIDS. Welcome, Gunila, and thank you so much for being with us. Um, first, I want to talk a little bit about your own personal careers. One of the things that's very striking about this plan is that it was put together by the two of you along with Admiral Gerar, John O'Merman from CDC, who's also with us today. John, thank you so much for being with us. Um, here you had a number of people with exceptional longevity of engagement in HIV coming together to put this plan and then marketing it successfully to Secretary Azar and on to, on to, the, uh, on to the president. How did that happen, Tony? How did that happen? What made that possible? You made this appeal in 2016, no more excuses. We had a new national plan under President Obama. Yeah. There wasn't the will under President Obama to sort of carry right. it to that next step. You've taken much of that work and you've moved it and, and, a, and, a, and you've had success and, and a breakthrough at this point. How, how did that happen? You know, Steve, it was, a, it, it was a complex series of events and I welcome Bob's input in it, but 
You're right. Why didn't it happen in 2014, 15, and 16, even though I was, I've been talking about this and writing about it for a long period of time? And I think it's the right people in the right place at the right time with the right tools. It just happened. And, and a lot of it was when Bob became the director of CDC, we've known each other forever, for, you know, 38 years. Uh, and. Uh, we got together, we visited the NIH, and we started talking about it, and we brought up, you know, why don't we see if we can jumpstart this thing and really get it going? And we had, you know, John O'Down, who'd been there for a while down at the CDC. Bob was new, but he had a passion for HIV, because that was his career, essentially, what he'd been doing. So we started talking about the possibility, of it, and then we engaged Admiral Giroir, who Assistant Secretary of Health, who said, you know, this actually sounds like a good idea. You think, you guys think you could do it? He said, yeah, let's make it a multi-agency. We got HRSA involved. We got the Indian Health Service involved and SAMHSA involved. And then we decided one day we were going to sit around on the sixth floor of the Humphrey Building and present it to Alex Azar, who was our secretary. And Alex, who some of you know, I'm sure many of you know in the room, is not a newbie to this. Alex was the uh, general counsel of the department during the Bush administration with Tommy Thompson when we put together the PEPFAR program. So he knew exactly what a effort to end an epidemic was. And then he became deputy secretary. So Alex said, this is a great idea. I think I'll bring it to the president. So go ahead and start solidifying it. He brought it to the president and then the president announced it and here we are. Bob? The only thing I would add, I think, is we've, I think Tony and myself and others for a long time had the aspirational goal of bringing an end to the AIDS epidemic uh, in this nation and obviously beyond. Um, but I will say people would look at us and say that's an aspirational goal. Right. And I think what was different here was that particularly Tony, myself, and, and the Assistant Secretary, uh, Brett Giroir, all of us made it very clear this was no longer aspirational. This was very doable. And, and I do think once the three of us became totally committed that this was, uh, we're not exaggerating, we're not, you know, over the top here, this is a doable thing. It's highly possible. It's, it can be accomplished. The question is, do you want to do it? And I will say the decisiveness of Secretary Azar to, to listen to that presentation, and he didn't have to go think about it. He said, this is doable, and then let's do this. And I think very similar was the discussion between the secretary and the president is doable. So I think it was really, as I always like to say, it was seeing the possible mm -hmm. and saying, wait a minute, this isn't aspirational, this is doable. And then now the, the challenge was for us, and we spent a substantial amount of time, you know, probably over six months putting a plan together uh, to make sure that we thought this through. And, uh, and uh, now we're on the verge of operationalizing this. And I agree with Tony is definitive statement, we are gonna get this done. Well, I, I am struck by the power of the map. Um, I know you've each made this point. When you put that map up and you say there are 48 counties and there's, and there's two other urban centers and there's seven rural states, and here they are, um, it, it, in a country of whatever we are, 340 million people, it looks very specific and very achievable in that regard. I mean, it's a very powerful tool for bringing across to, to someone who may not know much about this, about the possibility of actually achieving something quite momentous um, in our time. 
Um, we, as you saw in the film, we've, we've, we've gone out to Memphis and Arkansas and uh, spoken with uh, uh, people who are in those communities that are most uh, seriously impacted or at risk or living with HIV, and those are black and Hispanic um, uh, uh, gay men, it's transgender women of color, um, it's others. Um, a couple of things that really struck me in that in that effort, and we've also done similar work in Oakland recently in San Francisco. Um, one is the hope that one encounters about this initiative. People are not jumping to conclusions one way or another. They're looking for community engagement. They're looking to be listened to, and they're, they're hopeful to be able to engage in that way. And they're also putting a very heavy emphasis on stigma as one of the, as, as one of the uh, biggest obstacles to success. So I wanted to come back to each of you. You've each said, in your own way, that stigma does remain a lead obstacle in this. Stigma means many different things in many different contexts. This, I think, is going to turn out to be a very uh, differentiated set of environments. This is not single environments, many different environments with many different cultural and political and social factors. So stigma is not one single thing. But people have flagged that. And we heard that uh, in very emphatic terms in Memphis and Arkansas and in Oakland and San Francisco. Can you tell us a bit, if that's one of the main things that's going to keep you awake as you think about the success of this program, what should be the strategy looking ahead in order to try and mitigate stigma? Well, the one comment I would make to start with, and people have heard me say this before, uh, and I mean it with every um, drop of blood in my body, is that stigma is the enemy of public health. It's in our way. It's in our way, uh, uh, clearly, uh, in succeeding in this initiative. The other thing I will say is we have to be cognizant of the subtle ways we stigmatize. I mean, there are a lot of subtle ways we stigmatize in health. And the, the people that are the greatest teachers are going to be the young men and women that step forward and help teach us. Particularly, as I said, that each new HIV infection that occurs in the early years of this initiative, it's going to be so critical that those young men and women uh, have the courage to be our teachers and to let us understand what gaps we really had, what didn't work uh, as we begin the long road uh, to, uh, uh, to break down stigma, allow people to feel the joy of who they are. Um, it's going to be complicated. I don't think the academic centers, and I don't think necessarily Tony and I are the leaders in, in being able to say, this is exactly how we're going to do this. I really do look to the community and the individuals. Um, I do look for people to call out, and I've been called out on it, Jesse knows recently. Sometimes the words we use can be misinterpreted by some to be stigmatizing. Uh, we have to be very circumspect and peel back because uh, uh, I do think, particularly in the rural South, particularly in transgender persons, uh, particularly in the Indian community, I think one of the reasons there's such a barrier to access to treatment and prevention strategies is stigma. Then you couple it with the comorbidity that's associated with a, a drug use disorder, which is a, also a, a situation that has been associated with a lot of stigma. I remind people, 
it's a medical condition, not a moral failing. Uh, but I will tell you, society doesn't necessarily treat it that way. And you've got to get people to realize that that's what it is. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this is going to be uh, really important for people not to shrug it off and say, I don't think that's a problem. I think it's one of the biggest things Tony and I talk about. And it's one of the reasons we included the rural south in this initiative, because we think the challenges are going to be amplified there. I would think some, some of the success at eroding stigma is going to rely on getting the faith community engaged, getting local community leadership, mm -hmm. getting state governors, getting the media engaged. Uh, Tony, what are yeah. your thoughts? Well, we have to uh, denormalize or unnormalize stigma. Uh, you know, if you look historically, back in the very early years of the epidemic in 1981, there was stigma, and still is some residual stigma, against the gay community in cities where you wouldn't expect it. San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. And yet, by a really concerted, strong effort to push back on stigma, to make it abnormal to stigmatize, as opposed to normalizing stigmatization, we have to work even harder with that right now, because back in the early years, it was stigma against gay men predominantly and in injection drug users who have this strange disease. Now it's almost a triple whammy. It's, it's stigmatization against gay men and injection drug users who happen to be mostly African-American, who happen to live in an area of the country, beautiful as it may be, highly stigmatizes against those populations. So Steve, we have a, we have a really strong task. And you're right, we've got we've to be relentless in pushing back on stigma so that it is what we obviously optimally want it to be is completely unacceptable the way in some places now it really is uh, and i think we can do it i mean we've shown we can do it in certain areas it's going to be very difficult in the areas that are most intensively involved it seems also that in the in the initial phase in the in this startup phase as you're becoming operational entering into 2020 that you're going to be navigating a difficult environment. You're going to have uh, you're going to have criticism coming from different directions. You're going to have criticism coming from those who think spending money on HIV is a waste of resources. They just don't think this should be a priority. You're going to have criticism from those who don't like the Trump administration and think this is not credible or not not sufficiently uh, uh, funded or whatever. You're going to have folks asking questions around. Uh, a price and affordability of PrEP, or, or have you truly costed out this program and the like? What's the strategy, in your view, what's the winning strategy for, for controlling the narrative and getting dy dynamic momentum moving forward? So debunk the nonsense. So what's the nonsense? It, it, it costs too much money to put all of this investment so do the math. If you don't do it and you don't end the epidemic, it's going to cost billions and billions and billions more if you don't do it. So take that argument and throw it out. So the, the Trump administration, this transcends administrations. I mean, this is a movement that's a public health movement. It's going to happen beyond the Trump administration. So I think to politicize it is playing Washington games. This is not a political issue. This is a public health issue. So I would get rid of that. So what else do you want to throw aside? <laughs>
Bob, well, what's, what's yeah. your strategy for staying ahead of the game and controlling the narrative? Well, Tony said in his talk, one of the things we have to be prepared for is, is sort of the definition of success. I mean, in the first couple of years, the definition of success is then going to be that we're going to go from 40,000 new diagnoses to 80,000 new diagnoses, maybe 100,000 new diagnoses. That's going to be success. Some people may try to use that and spin it the wrong way. Uh, we obviously are going to be working very hard to be able to define true incidence cases, and we do expect within 24 months that we should start seeing a change in incidence cases based on this. Um, so I do think trying to make sure that we have evidence-based data to uh, continue to show the value of the effectiveness of this implementation. Modern evaluation is going to be such a critical part of this. You've seen it in the PEPFAR program, those of you who have been involved. It's a very important part of the PEPFAR program that's been brought, Ambassador Burks has really brought it to bear to really be able to monitor and evaluate and show uh, consequences. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, th I think for us, the other area that I think is so important is that we embrace the innovation that each jurisdiction is going to bring to the table on this and not have predefined concepts about what we think the key gaps are. You know, there may be some jurisdictions that the key gap is just stable housing right. for some population. That's, well, let, let the different communities do that. Let's not be too prescriptive in defining, uh, well, I don't think that's the way to do it. Uh, as I said, uh, ultimately the most important element of success from my perception as a physician uh, is, is to see that we can effectively engage, uh, particularly those, new, those men, new men, the men and women that do acquire uh, HIV in the early years of this initiative so we, they can help us understand what's not really working rather than us just go with our eyes shut thinking everything we're doing is working because it's obviously not working. Uh, and in, if we can really effectively engage that group to be teachers, uh, help refine this uh, program, I think we're going to be highly successful. So you're already beginning to take the show on the road, to begin a listening tour of sorts, yeah. to go to these communities, right. uh, to talk to them about them owning and controlling this process. What are you, you've already started that, and that's a key dimension of this next phase? Yeah. No, we have. In fact, we, you use the word, we actually have been almost like a roadshow going around, starting off with leaders of community and now getting to go into actually into the community. Because as we've said all along, it, it, this is, is going to be a community-driven program. Yes. This is not going to be a Washington-driven I mean, we have the framework from above, but the implementation is going to be on the ground. And what are you hearing from people? Great enthusiasm for the most part. And what's their advice to you? Uh, keep the community involved very closely is the yeah. advice. Listen to the community. Yeah. I mean, we're, my whole month of July is going all across the United States. I think one of the things we want to emphasize, because I don't think some of the communities believe it, um, that this is not Washington driven. We want the individual jurisdictions to come up with their plan. Right. And, and we want them to understand uh, you know, that that's the task for them as a jurisdiction to fully engage the community within their jurisdiction and to come up with their plan. Um, our role is going to be to monitor the effectiveness of the plan right. so that there's objectivity uh, to uh, what's happening. Um, but I think there's going to be um, 
you know, great latitude to really embrace the innovation that different yeah. initiatives do. I think some people still are skeptical that this is going to somehow we're going to tell people how to do this. Yeah. That's not, so that's what I think people still have skepticism, you know, and how we work to make sure each jurisdiction um, brings uh, the community to the table. You know, a lot of the HIV initiatives that have been done that are funded through state health departments don't necessarily bring all the community to the table. They, they bring the community to the table that the state health departments bring to the table. And this initiative, as you know, is not going, there are seven states involved, but 50 of the uh, are jurisdictions. They're not at the state level. And it, it's really going to be important to let everyone understand there's a high expectation that the community, uh, not the historical community that was always part of the AIDS programs and the thing, but the community is brought to the table. And I'm sure uh, there'll be, uh, we'll get a lot of help from the national community organizations that will also be reinforcing that, that the community, if you will, uh, maybe initially has to push their way a little in some of the jurisdictions that they haven't been able to get in as easily before, but we're going to be there to sort of help open those doors because we want the community involved in this initiative. Thank you. Uh, we're gonna, I want to ask one more question, then we want to open things to, to the audience, and we have microphones, and ask you to just put your hands up in a moment and we'll come to you and we'll bundle together several comments and remarks uh, and come back to, uh, to Tony and Bob. Um, this, uh, this initiative, um, if it's successful and it proves the concept rapidly and it builds confidence and excitement and the like, it of course it's going to require to be fully, fully operational significant resources, and that means it's going to require strong, sustained support within Congress over, over many years. It's also going to require strong advocacy and support at the level of the governors of these right. states. So what can you tell us about the dialogue with Congress and the dialogue with some of the key governors? Well, the dialogue with Congress is, as is, has been, fortunately for us, very positive. I mean, they are in general, quite supportive of the broad effort that we put in and have been putting in for years. When they heard about this, they were really quite interested to find out, is this really possible? And that's why when we did a bunch of briefings uh, and we presented essentially the same thing that Bob and I just presented now uh, with some additions of HRSER and, and, and uh, the Assistant Secretary, they're with us all the way. So I have no doubt that we're going to get the support of the Congress. I, I, I'm very confident that we will. The level of the governors is interesting individually. I mean, I think Governor Cuomo in New York looked at what happened in San Francisco and his health people. Howard Zucker called me up and said, hey, what's going on in San Francisco? Do you think we could do it here in New York? And they've done a similar thing in New York, and that's the reason why the New York uh, uh, incidences are, are going down precisely. So I think the governors, maybe more than anybody else, because they're the ones that are really responsible for their individual state, I think we're going to get a lot of enthusiasm and support from the governors. I mean, in the past, you know, in the 90s, <coughs> Ryan White comes on board you know, there was, there was lackluster response in the South to the, many of these opportunities. So you're really staking out uh, right. the idea that this can be changed. Right. Yeah, I think it's a different era with a different well, look attitude. At, yeah, look at uh, recently, uh, we had the opportunity to interact with Governor Kemp in Georgia. Um, 
you know, I, you know, as you all know, CDC is not an opinion organization. We're data-driven, evidence-based. And we can all have what our opinions are, you know, a decade ago or two before there's data. But the reality is the data is pretty, the data is clear that syringe programs work in many different ways, both in HIV and hepatitis C, but they also work in getting people into treatment for addiction, right? And people said to me, you know, Governor Kemp's never going to sign that bill. Never going to happen. He signed the bill. And when he was asked when he came to CDC why he signed the bill, he said, well, it was common sense. So I do think that we're in a, you know, I mean, there's going to be energy put into having real dialogue. Um, you know, we did pick seven southern states for a reason. You know, we could have done Massachusetts and New York, but we did pick seven southern states for a reason because that's where the challenge is right now. And I'm very confident. I'm going to have an opportunity to meet with the governors of the Governor Association next month. Very confident that we'll spend time there, a couple days, I think, uh, having an interaction to let people understand how important it is to put evidence-based data into action. And, you know, we can all have our own personal opinion, but let's look at the data and let's put that data into action. Let's turn to our audience. Who would like to kick off with some comments or questions? Back here, please identify yourself and be very succinct. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Dan Teets. There's a, uh, we'll bring a microphone. To uh, Dan Teets from Housing Works in New York. Um, I'm, uh, thank you for your presentations. Uh, I completely agree. It's very sound, I think, on the traditional health measures and, and the way in which you're approaching it. I'm concerned, however, and maybe this where you ended uh, with focusing on rural states in the South, about the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. So the other barriers. Uh, you know, f these communities are mostly marked by poverty. So uh, lack of access to uh, uh, housing, uh, transportation, uh, nutrition. So can you speak a little bit about wh where, where you see any of that fitting in this plan? And I'll just note that the president's budget uh, you know, whacked at HUD and housing assistance, uh, even, at, even as it, you're proposing this? Yeah, I think it's very important. Again, I don't know how I can say this any clearer that each jurisdiction understand what those gaps are. We firmly expect some jurisdictions are going to come back, it's housing. It's, it's a number of what you might not think traditionally is medical. I happen to think housing is medical, okay, but some people may not think it's medical. So, and how to build those bridges, you know, this is a presidential initiative. Uh, it's being operationalized by the Secretary of Health, but it's a presidential initiative, and I think we're, we're looking for those communities to define those barriers. I suspect in some communities, many of the barriers that are defined are not going to be traditional medical barriers, and they're going to need to be addressed, and that, that, that's what their plan will do. So I hope people realize. I mean, those of you who have been involved in Ryan White programs, I was for many years. I had a very large, uh, I mean, I don't, not that large, but I had a significant housing grant for my Ryan White program. My Ryan White patients weren't going to be able to get virally suppressed if they didn't have stable housing. So I, I, I want to encourage you that we want these jurisdictions to look at what are the requirements to be successful, not what are the medication requirements, not what are the doctor-nurse requirements, you know, what are the community outreach requirements, no, what are the requirements within that community to be successful? Yeah, I, mean, I agree with what Bob is saying. There are certain social, social determinants that we can do something about, and there are others that are gonna be much, much more difficult. 
I think we need to address the ones that we can. I think housing is one of the concrete ones that we can. But we should be careful that we don't allow anyone to throw up the impediments of social determinants as a reason not to forcefully push ahead. That's right. Because we may have to push our way through the social determinants, mm -hmm. trying to overcome the ones that we can. And the ones that we can't, we do our best and move on. But not, not to let that be sort of a psychological obstacle to mm -hmm. us. Because I've heard that very often. Oh, social determinants, you'll never be able to do it. We get that. But you know, we still got to keep pushing. OK. Um, I want to ask uh, Gunila Carlson if you would like to add any comments. We can bring a microphone to you. And also John O'Merman, who's here. Sorry to put you on the spot so, so abruptly, but um, it's great to have you here. I feel like uh, we, we, it would be great to hear from you. Thank you so much, and thanks for this great opportunity. I really benefited from so thorough and clear uh, presentations, and I think this is a very crucial opportunity also for the global HIV response, because what we learn from here, it is about political will, it is about joining forces, it is to focus on communities, and equally also see what works and what doesn't. So what we heard here today, it seems very promising, and of course that United States can and shall take its leading role. Uh, I also very appreciative that you mentioned PEPFAR because I think lessons learned from there with monitoring and evaluation is, is also very helpful when we use data. And there are so much of similarities. That's why this leadership and this conversation is very helpful for us also as a UN agency. UNAIDS is the co-sponsoring organization within United Nations to, to end uh, AIDS as a global health threat 2030. And we are joining, joined by 11 UN entities and the World Bank uh, to, to really make sure that we are not losing this. And our biggest obstacle right now is actually complacency and that people think that this is over. And it's not, because we see some alarming trends uh, in the world. But at the same time, it is within reach. So we have to join forces now. So. Thank you so much. I have no questions, but I'm really looking forward to learn more. Thank you. Jono, would you like to add a few remarks? Thank you very much. And um, I, I think, um, I, as, uh, as Dr. Fatih, my boss, already, already mentioned, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the United States has a great number of challenges for HIV. And I think in the global community, we, we have um, been humble about the fact that we are not the most successful. And, and that there's a long way to go for a variety of reasons. So I wanted to ask the group a question, which is we want to we want to do better and we want to achieve the goals of this very bold initiative. Um, what are the two most important things that we would need to do to make sure that we actually do that in the next few years? Thank you, Jono. We have time to take several additional remarks and questions. Who else would like to jump in? There's some hands, right? Uh, put your hands up. I'm, I'm having hard. There's some hands over here. Let's go over here. Do we have microphones? Chris, you want to speak first? And then back here? Sure. Uh, well, my name's Chris Collins with Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS TV and Malaria. And thanks to both of you for all your leadership over the years and for this great initiative. Um, 
sorry, in the name of my organization may reveal my question. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about how an effort to end the global AIDS epidemic would be similar or different than your domestic effort in terms of issues like targeting and using the, the technology you talked about. And um, can we look forward to a global plan to end the epidemic? Thank you. Yes, let's hold for a moment. Let's hear from some other folks. Yes, please. Hi, thank you for your talk. This is, uh, I'm Dr. Yeo from Norris Consulting. I guess my question is a little bit different um, in the sense that we've heard a lot about community engagement and what we should do and what HHS and your organization is doing. From the industry perspective, what kind of engagement would you um, expect in order to achieve this um, um, goal? That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, um, when you think about the clinical trials, because I think part of the aspect that we need to address in eradication is how we overlap um, new therapies, potentially new therapies in, um, in these communities that are suffering from um, the epidemic. How do you think the industry can bridge that gap in clinical trials and working with the federal government too? Thank you. And there's a hand in the back row. Hi, thank you. My name is Dr. Kechi Achebe. I work for Save the Children US. And my question really is aligned to both Chris and the um, lady before me. Um, so we've been doing lots of work globally. I mean, you've been quite successful there. And you talked about engaging um, the communities. And um, you talked about faith-based communities. But um, just looking at your presentation, several of the target areas you know, is um, the the epidemic is really aligned to key population. And I was just wondering, as you go on your road shows, how you're also um, planning to engage those communities that are critical to ending the epidemic in the US. Thanks. Thank you. We had a hand right here. And then we're going to come back to our speakers. Yes, right here. Oh, OK. Hi. Uh, yes. Oh. No, no, go ahead. Please. OK. Um, Maggie Chernogorsky from Viv Healthcare. I'm actually the head of innovation and implementation science, so I want to applaud you for saying that implementation, more implementation science is needed to advance some of the um, evidence-based interventions that we currently have. I couldn't agree more. We do have many of the tools to help end the HIV-AIDS epidemic. But on the other hand, we have some new innovations coming up as well, some of the long-acting injectables for both treatment and prevention, and how do you see those kind of helping um, to get to the goals of ending the HIV. Thank you. If you could just hand the microphone right here, and we'll one more one more remark. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jesse Milan, the CEO at Age United, and as a person living with HIV, as we're headed toward Long-Term Survivors Day, which is this week, I think you two have not been thanked enough for both your bravery and your brilliance. So I want to thank you going into the lion's den to advocate for this um, with, with the president and Secretary Azar, I think is really important that you be thanked. Three questions, and they're all around C's. One, uh, the budget. You proposed two, uh, $291 new million, and then the House rec recommended a higher increase, but we still have the Senate, and it's all p part of the overall federal budget, which is always a problem and has often resulted in continuing resolutions. What happens 
if we are in a CR again and the new money you're proposing doesn't happen for perhaps months and months and months, where does this plan go? Second C, the community. You've talked a lot about the community and those of us who've been working in the Ryan White program for a long time and also with community planning from the CDC know that there are guidances around what's supposed to happen in community planning. What are the details that we don't know about yet in terms of those jurisdictional plans? And then the last, uh, the last C is the CFARs. What role do you actually see the CFARs playing in those jurisdictions? I think it's not terribly clear. Right. Thank you, Jesse. Um, we've got a lot of questions we've stacked up. <laughs> I, I uh, hope you uh, remember and, them. <laughs> and uh, uh, why, don't we, why don't we start with Tony and, and, and roll through some of those, and then we'll go to Bob. Okay, okay, so let me just address the important question about <clears throat> what does this mean for global? Because that's a, an obvious question. I mean, we're focusing on the United States. We don't live in a vacuum. We live in a global community. So there are certain things that are immutable between both. So the, the basis, the fundamental basis of can you do it is the same. The science is there. Treatment as prevention works in Africa the same way it works in Washington or Boston. Pre-exposure prophylaxis works the same in both places. The difference is, and it relates to what Bob was showing about the map, is that we're talking about different situations in different countries. Countries that have a generalized epidemic versus a restricted epidemic is going to be different than what we're doing here in the United States. Countries that have a restricted epidemic demographically and geographically are going to be quite similar. So when we put the PEPFAR program together, you know, we went and picked for what the most uh, broadest impact. So the reason we picked 14 countries, because those 14 countries had 50% of all the infections in the world. So we didn't try to figure out was this a generalized here or was it not here? We said, let's get under the umbrella the most people that we can have in the world. And that's how we started PEPFAR. We weren't talking about ending anything when we started PEPFAR. But now PEPFAR and the Global Fund can actually essentially reinvent themselves, I think, to really going towards ending the epidemic by applying the same principles as we're doing now. So we don't want to let anybody get the idea that when we have a plan for the United States that we are not acutely aware of and care deeply about the epidemic in the rest of the world. It's just going to be different for different countries. CFARs. Well, the CFARs are going to be one of a number of mechanisms that we will use at NIH. Because you know NIH is fundamentally a basic and clinical research organization. What we're talking about now is an implementation plan. So to the extent that we can and have done successful implementation science through the CFARs, because the map that I showed you, the CFARs are superimposed almost exactly over the regions where we have the high intensity. You might notice, I didn't point it out because I didn't want to get anybody from Texas anxious, but Texas has got four of the counties and there's nothing there that we have, but we're going to use the CFARs that are geographically close by, like in Alabama and in, and in North Carolina to help out in Texas. So the CFARs are going to play a major role in the implementation science. And I just 
before I came here, I gave a presentation at the HPTN meeting at the, uh, at the Marriott Wardman, which is going on right now, and someone asked the same question, what about our role in the HPTN? We're gonna use our networks to get involved in implementation science. So what you're gonna see with regard to this plan is a lot of NIH-driven implementation science, which we generally didn't do very much of. On the technological innovation piece, could you say something about sort of vaccine trials? What might that mean about long-term ARTs, long-term Well, yeah, there were a couple of questions quickly. Um, so what about the role of, of vaccines? We think we can end the epidemic in the United States without a successful vaccine yet. Would a successful vaccine help? Obviously, <laughs> it would be the nail in the coffin of the epidemic if we had a successful vaccine. Where I think a vaccine is gonna be most important is if we get a 50 to 60% effective vaccine and we couple that with PrEP and treatment as prevention globally, apropos the question globally, that's where it's gonna have the main impact. Because when you have an epidemic in which it's a generalized epidemic in society, that's where a vaccine really can have a major effect. With regard to long acting, that's gonna really be icing on the cake. So what that's gonna do, it's gonna make prep and it's gonna make treatment easier for people who have an adherence problem of taking a pill every day. It's not gonna be a game-changing thing, it's just gonna make things a little bit easier. Bob, could you say a word about the budget issue, the, the issue that uh, Jesse raises around what if we're stuck in a CR um, in this period? Well, you know, we've been meeting, obviously, with both chambers. Uh, we've obviously, as Tony said earlier, this is 